0: Bangly bang on the Empire podcast this week. Here's another nice mess we've gotten ourselves into as we talk Stan and Ollie with Stan, not Ollie, Steve Coogan.
1: The toughest thing really in making this film is not the you know, the physical stuff and the prosthetic stuff. and It's trying to get under their skin and, and bring them to life.
0: Plus, we drop names shamelessly with my good friend Elton John. Sorry, John S. Baird, the director of that same film. I'm a massive name-dropper, as, you, as you're about to find out, Chris. <laughs> all that and more on the movie podcast that is all slick and polished. Now it has its very own producer. Sir, 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 sir. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, we are joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. There's our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. She's very excited. She's just about to go off to Thailand.
2: I am. Uh, it's ex- can't say why. I can't say why, but it's really stressful because I have to get a visa and I have to get a flight, and it's all. Ah. Bit last minute is what I'm saying.
0: James Dyer is also here, which is nice, I guess. Can I have an honorific, please? No.
3: I feel like Helen's been the Geek Queen now since two thousand twelve, and I'm just some twat who comes in and
0: does the podcast. I think I need a like a I need a title. And therein lies your identity. You (laughs) are indeed just some twat who comes in and does the podcast. And does the podcast down, quite frankly enough. I can own that.
2: I literally have Geek Queen written on my diary. Like it's do you know what I mean? It's It's enforced. Funny
0: I actually have some twat
3: written on my diary, (laughs) so that works out quite well.
0: Oh, amazing. We should introduce our new producer who is going to make this podcast sound slick from now on, Jane Long. Welcome to the podcast. Very much. Um, what, what plans do you have?
2: Uh, just a total re basically. You three are out. That's <laughs> it's a fair cop.
0: Yeah, total film are in. Yeah. It's a big takeover. Uh, should we have a question? Sure. sure. Let's have a question. The question comes from email and it comes from Mike Daisley. And he asks, on Jack White's latest tour, he required everyone to put their phone in a yonder pouch, which locks it in and can only be unlocked by touching it against an unlocking station in the entrance area. Would you support this as an idea in cinemas after sitting behind someone who was checking their football bet every 10 minutes? I would be 100% behind it. And that's Mike Daisley.
3: So press screenings, it's very common for uh, for them to confiscate your phones mm. and indeed everything before you go in, lest you pirate the film. And I remember once going to one where they had these sort of foam pouchy things that you had to seal your phone away in and then you had to come out and unseal the, the them. Silver the silver ones. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. So there's the silver bags where you tear them open, which is, you know, frankly, very easy to do. But there were ones like that where it was properly sealed by a machine and you had to go back to the machine at the end and then they unsealed yeah. it for you. So you literally couldn't get your phone. I preferred that to being divested of my phone and having to hide it in my pants, which really nobody needs.
2: No, really. Never. Um, first of all, I think cinema etiquette is that you should put your phone off, not just on silent. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're using it silently, the light is distracting. You should not use your phone in cinemas. That yes. is the basic rule here.
0: But then how do you record the film? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, uh, as your lawyer, Chris, I would say that you shouldn't record the film at all.
0: What? But then, how do mm-hmm. I enjoy it later on? I like get home and I want to watch the film again. I just think, oh, that Infinity War was great. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to watch it again. So I just watched it on my phone, as- and then I want others to share in the in, mm-hmm. in the bounty, mm-hmm. the Marvel bounty. Sure. And I just cheekily uploaded to YouTube.
2: Well, first of all, I'd say, as your lawyer, that Nestle make Bounty, not Marvel. Um, And second of all, that none of that happened and and never will happen. And we'd like to make that extremely clear to Mr. and Mrs. Lawyer from Disney. Thanks very much. (laughs) Please don't kill us. Um, Do we need these pouches? See, my problem is, like, I do have some sympathy with, let's say, somebody who's on call for long periods of time and still wants to see a film. And is considerate about it, so feels a very low buzzing and goes out of the room to check what's up. You know, I have some sympathy with that. I have some sympathy with parents who have a babysitter who might in extremis need to get hold of them.
3: Mm.
2: So I, I would be a little bit wary of this this particular approach just because of that
3: did you know that stephen king found out that joe hill was his wife had gone to lay about with his son joe hill while he was at a cinema and because it was like back in you know however long ago it was a long time ago they was uh, they did an announcement that said, could steve king please leave the auditorium his wife is in and then inter- apparently the well, whole in the theater. film yeah and they were side clapping because he went out to go and see the but well, the son. actors in the film well, that would have been... Was it like a purple Rosy type situation? Very interactive uh, wow. film experience. Bander snatch, eat your heart out. Exactly. Um, but no, this is something that has become more prevalent in recent years. Because, you know, I'm not going to start cursing millennials... Because, you know, Ben's not, not here. It's not just them. But we've got into a situation where people dual screen all the time. So whether they're in the cinema, whether at home watching TV, they will be on their phone simultaneously tweeting, doing whatever, while they are watching something. They don't give something their undivided attention. And the one thing I love about the cinema is, because it's dark darkened thing, it does funnel your attention into just the film. And so it drives me insane when you see these little glows kind of popping up because people are, oh, it's a bit of a talky scene. I'll just check Instagram and see what's happening. It's just like, well, why go to the cinema? Honestly, stay at home or, you know, die. Just don't do that. It's very upsetting.
2: To be honest, for the manpower and the money that this scheme would take, you could probably employ proper ushers again, and you could probably just get the ushers to make people put their phones away.
3: I mean, for the money it would cost, you could probably employ usher to
0: come and actually okay, just patrol the go. cinema and take phones off people. But then when you have a problem with, you know, they, they can't make you put your phone away, um,
2: well, I mean, they problem. can because like, places like the Alamo Draft House have sort of terms and conditions when yeah, you go into the cinema which property, say you're not allowed to use your phone in the cinema. Mm. So that's all you need to do. You need to just post these. You need to enforce them and then if people don't like it, you may lose out on those people but the other people will come back more often. Mm. Like, I wonder if it would really cost you that much in terms of lost business in the end. I don't think that it would.
3: I do agree with you. It's definitely an usher issue because there's no way it ends well. Even if someone knows they shouldn't be doing it, the second another patron says could you put that away it becomes a situation whereas if an usher does it I think being British we were just like oh i you know, I'm terri- just, sorry I'm terribly sorry I didn't mean to do yeah. that <laughs> I mean we're very spoiled as sort of film critics we go to screenings where mm-hmm. people are terribly considerate and it's very quiet and you know we went to one the day where you and I were the only people in the room indeed they put on a screening of a film just for us uh, and you know and that's quite nice but when you do go and see it especially when you watch a film like A Quiet Place and when I saw that I was very aware of people you know rustling and farting and doing whatever else they were doing you know it's just like could you not just keep it in yeah put it away please yeah
0: <laughs> that's it yeah okay you know but we also when we go to these screenings and now and again we, as you say we do encounter these yonder pouches um which aren't over there as the name suggests but are right there in front of you mm-hmm. um and we often yeah i do sometimes wonder because we we walk in with all sorts of stuff like, yeah. ipads and Laptops, and I once had someone try to take a laptop off me and uh, at a screening, which was ridiculous. Yeah. That didn't end well for them, as I recall. <laughs> I killed them. Uh, I think, no, I just I just, I just, walked away, and yeah. then went, you know, they went, and come, they came come and back. Yeah. Yeah. I was prepared not to watch, what was it, Quantum of Solace or something? It I was, think it was something Quantum like of Solace. Yeah, yeah. I, I my
3: like... finest hour was Ocean's 12 when I walked in with two mobile phones and two digital cameras. Uh, I have no idea why I had all these things on me, but I managed to smuggle them into the screening, even though they were doing searches at the door. For I am Danny Ocean. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we should make clear, as James's lawyer, that he didn't use these. For no, no, I wasn't there to
3: pirate the He just
2: objects on principle to giving up his phone
3: and yeah. being told what to do.
2: And people. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I think that.
3: That's Screw something. you, the man. Yeah, exactly. But, but to your point, though, it, it, this has been exacerbated and also solved by, like, smartwatches. So if mm. you are on call, technically you can have a very discreet tap on the wrist and you can have a quick peer at it and that will tell you that. You know, someone needs you because mm. we've been in a situation where when you've got a smartwatch, even if they take your phone off you and it's out in the foyer, mm.
0: you're still getting text messages and alerts and whatnot. Mm. Uh, you just, you I have to say, though, to James, remember. if you have a discreet one off the wrist in a, in a cinema, people <laughs> frown upon that kind of thing. They do.
3: You can get arrested unless yeah. it's a
0: certain type of cinema. Yeah. And people will ask you to put it away. In the yonder pouch or, or wherever you can. Put that back in your yonder pouch. <laughs> or get out.
2: Is that what the kids are calling it these
3: days? Okay.
0: I've gone to the screen so with the podcast equipment as well. The bloody <laughs> the mic stand. Would you
3: set up at the back. <laughs>
0: yeah. It makes recording the film so much easier. Okay. Projectionist, can I get a level, please? <laughs> yeah, you come in halfway through. Could you start it again, please? I missed the beginning. What happens? Amazing. Anyway. That's that question answered to the <laughs> satisfaction of Mike Daisley. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast and why the hell wouldn't you, you can get in touch with us. Find number of methods. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast or chances are we won't see it. We're on Facebook as well. And you can also email us, podcast at empireonline.com. Shall we have a guest? Yay! Let's have a guest. And let's have the director of this week's Stan and Ollie, which was nominated this week for three BAFTAs, including Best British Film. Uh, he is, of course, John S. Baird, the Scottish director, his perhaps best known for Filth. and I don't just mean in a general sense, mm-hmm. the actual film Filth, uh, which I once watched on a plane, and it's a fantastic <laughs> film and it's great. But I had to pause it on a bit where James McAvoy was doing something salubrious and I had to pause it as the to get the meal from the stewardess and she looked at the screen and I just looked like the creepiest man in the world. So he's a director of Filth but now he's back he's done a complete 180 with Stan and Ollie which is a lovely, tender, heartwarming tale of Laurel and Harley uh, towards the end of their lives and career. I spoke to him recently in a hotel room in London. The Savoy, in fact. You should don't say what the hotel is to protect the identity and safety of people who do junkets there. But uh, it was a Savoy, because the Savoy features in, in the film, so they had the, the junket at the, at the Savoy as well. Very, very nice.
2: Mm, it's good, isn't it?
0: Yeah, the, uh, the doorman sneered at me as I walked in with my podcast equipment and my <laughs> ramshackle coat and just clearly not there. He said, are you staying here, sir? Like, you know I'm not staying here. Just take a look at me. I'm clearly not staying here. Anyway, so we had a good old chat. Uh, some football chat here. Is this with the doorman or with... No, this is me and John S. Baird, the door S man. He wasn't interested in chatting, but this is me chatting to John S. Baird about football, films and all kinds of dropped names. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the director of Stan and Ollie, John S. Baird. How are you, sir?
4: Hello, Chris. How are you, Paul?
0: I'm not too bad, not too bad. Congratulations on uh, three nominations today at the BAFTAs. I should have said the BAFTA-nominated Stan and Ollie. Oh,
4: there you go. Yeah, that sounds good, actually. Yeah, keep talking, keep talking. <laughs> uh, no, I, it's, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful day. I've got an unbelievable hangover as well, but it's helping me push through.
0: <laughs> or from last night's shenanigans is it like a pre-Bab denomination yeah, well we shindig
4: just, no we just did this uh, we did a Q&A right. and afterwards there was all these incredible people come into the came into the room like David Walliams and, and Alex McLeish the Scotland manager you're kidding I, me Alex and, no, no, no. McLeish yeah Alex is in the film he's not Alex has got a tiny tiny part in the background you'll never see him you'll never really recognise him but yeah he's in there. he became a pal of mine a few years ago whereabouts um, like I'm an Aberdeen football fan and, and uh, I met him on a flight and just got chatting to him and I said look I'm in films and blah 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 and he knew the the last movie I did Filth and he said oh I'm in the Laurel and Hardy fan club where I was when I was young I was younger and I said well come along and see us shooting it and so we had a few nights out as well and, and met up for dinner a few times and he came to the film and we've kept in touch ever since so he came to the there was a celebrity fan screening last night so there was all sorts there there was alan carr and les dennis and frank skinner and you know darrow breen and, and all, all these guys came along to pay tribute you know wow so That's amazing. yeah and then i just went a little bit too mad on the red wine <laughs> and uh shouldn't have but never mind
0: that is amazing i'm gonna obsess on the alex McLeish thing for a little bit as well because uh, he's a massive uh, empire reader Yes, that?
4: he yeah. is. He is. He he loves Empire. You know, he's a real film buff, Alex. Yeah. Is, you know, you know. I was very, really surprised at how how knowledgeable he is. Yeah, and and we bonded over. I'm a massive name dropper, as you as you're about to find out, Chris. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, uh, you know, I always like blab on about my relationship with, with Mr. Scorsese because I'm I'm quite close to him. And yeah. and anyway, yeah. I I was telling Alex about the first time I met Scorsese and what I said to him, and I said. You know, I told him that, that you know that, that my favorite film has made me want to get into the industry and stuff, and had built up this big drum. and He thought it was going to obviously be *Raging Bull*, a taxi driver, or whatever. And I said, "No, no, no, it's *King of Comedy*." And I thought, "Oh, Alex McLeish isn't going to know about *The King of Comedy*." <laughs> anyway, oh, that's, that's my favorite film, and he started going. He's doing an impression of Rupert Pumpkin and stuff, and yeah, you know, he's really, really knowledgeable. Bloody you know hell! Yeah, yeah, should, yeah, we should yeah. get him on this podcast. Listen, I could set it up. Uh, there's no fee involved, uh, no fee at all, mate. So uh, all right,
0: okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna issue this challenge.
4: As soon as we're done, I'll text him mm-hmm. because he lives in London as well. You see? Okay, right. So, but I'm guarantee he'll come on.
0: That would be amazing. That'd be amazing. Yeah. We
4: should probably talk about your film. Let's do that. Yeah, at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The let's BAFTA nominated Stan and Ollie. That's it again, mate. That's just just, just music to my ears. No, it's <laughs> it's it's great. it's still kind of sinking in, Chris. You know. Um, I'd I'd always wanted to be involved in in that kind of thing, you know. I'd always watched the BAFTAs and it always excited me, you know. And I always thought, oh, I wonder if I'll ever get there. I wonder if I'll ever be involved in that company, you know. So I'm going to really relish every second. I'm going to bring my mum. She's getting on now and I'm going to bring her and she'll be delighted. And (laughs) uh, it's at the Albert Hall and we'll just have a, we'll have a tear up. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but um, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I was at this thing. We were promoting the film in the states last month, and Sony Classics, who who are doing the film over there, they they got us to. It's called the Governor's Ball, and it's an Oscar event. Yeah, mm. went along to it, and and they gave out so honorary Oscars um, uh, before the actual big ceremony because they don't have time to do it in the big ceremony. And anyway, there was lifetime achievements awards uh, getting handed out, and. Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, who are you know two big heavyweight producers out there, uh, were getting awards. I thought, oh, there's going to be, there's obviously going to be some famous heads here tonight, but I was not expecting, not expecting what I saw. David, literally, I was the, literally I was the only person in the room who I didn't recognise.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it was David Williams Alex McLeese.
4: <laughs> honestly, mate, I walked in first person I saw Spielberg. I'm telling you, first person I saw Spielberg, then Tom Hanks, then. Who else was it? Harrison Ford and then Lady Gaga and then this one <laughs> and that one and Clint Eastwood. Spoke to Clint Eastwood, you know? And I'm thinking this is absolutely insane. So hopefully the BAFTAs are are gonna be like you know, that's what it's gonna be like as well. So
0: what do you see what do you see uh, you know, a shindig like that as? Do you see it as an opportunity to go around making just cool small talk with people that you grew up idolizing, or do you see it as as go, oh, hang on a second here? I could I could, you know. I could get in with Spielberg here and my next thing could be a Spielberg production and off I go?
4: Well, you kind of have to test the water, you know? You don't want to be this sort of fanboy who's annoying people, but you want to... (laughs) But people like talking about themselves, you know? And they like praise, and and especially actors and directors, we we love a bit of that. And it's great to go up to somebody and say, look, I'm a real fan of yours and, and get talking and... The two people actually talked to that night, I talked to, to, to Clint Eastwood very, very briefly, but the one that I loved was Willem Defoe. He was sitting mm. at the table next to us. Wow. And just a great guy. And and, and, and I suppose what I like to do is I like going up to the director saying, I'm a great admirer of your work, you know, and, mm. and seeing what the reaction is. Because sometimes you get different reactions, you know. I, I remember a few years ago I approached Paul Greengrass, at, at, I think it was the Biffers, what a lovely guy he is. You must oh, have spoke to him. Oh, yeah, right? he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah. great. Lovely, yeah. lovely man, you know. And as I say, you know, I've got a good relationship with Scorsese now. And you know who I hope wins the best director at BAFTA? is Corone. Oh, he's great, isn't he? Not only because yeah. he's got a brilliant film, but because that is the sweetest man you'll yeah. meet. So, yeah, you have crushes on these guys as well because you, be, you want to be doing what they're doing, you yeah. know. So you want to spend time with them and see if some of their magic rubs off against you. Yeah. You you try and put yourself in their shoes, right? Mm. You try and open with something that nobody else has opened with, yeah. And that's why. <laughs> that's why I, when the first time I met Scorsese, I said to him, you know, I didn't say oh taxi driver or raging bull or something like that. I said King of Comedy because I yeah. genuinely love that film, but I knew that he thinks that's one of his best works that was well, right. that was completely undervalued, yeah, and, and and underappreciated, I should say. And I think it was a work of genius and way way above way ahead of its time. So you try and open with something that... I think with, with, with Paul Greengrass, I said something like, oh, I live just down the road from you in Surrey. Or something <laughs> like that. It was something <laughs> weird like that, yeah? Um, and it's always good if you, if you have like a mutual, even if it's very distant, like a mutual kind of connection, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To avoid being sort of labelled a stalker, I try and have something personal <laughs> to say, yeah.
0: <laughs> and Scorsese, uh, there's, a, there's a connection, isn't there, with Laurel and Hardy? I believe you ended up watching movies with marty i've never I've, i actually have met him so i think i can call him marty it's i fine. never even call called him marty mind. chris so i don't think you should either now you, you call, call him what? mr no, no, scorsese i sir? do i call him mr scorsese to his
4: face wow to his face wow he he always says call me marty but i just don't haven't graduated to that point where i feel comfortable <laughs> doing it you know i i call him mr scorsese because i've got so much respect for yeah. that man you know
0: it's like meeting your friends parents uh, at school they're you know it's just never. It's always Mrs. So-and-so. Yeah, Mrs.
4: Mrs. Jones or whatever. Yeah. yeah, you just. But but I didn't watch any films. And what he did is he offered to give me his personal hand crank camera from the nineteen twenties to use in the film. Yeah, uh, unfortunately we couldn't use it because we were we were shooting a scene from the nineteen thirties, and it and it, and it would have been that cam- particular camera would have been sort of out of date by that point. And they would mm. have been using sort of more modern things. But he, he he definitely advised me on stuff like lens choices, um, and the film as you, you've seen the film. It opens with a, a long tracking shot, yeah. Yes. And, and, and I I asked his advice a lot on that, obviously, because he he's the master of one of the masters of art, you know, we're good fellas, obviously. And pe- a lot of people have referenced that, um, and also about keeping actors motivated over you know a numerous long takes because that take. You know, it lasts for minutes. You know, it lasts for quite yeah. a while. And is it? Uh, is it completely one take? Or no, it, it's actually it's actually two shots stitched together. Okay. Uh, because they were at diff- two different locations, but hopefully, if any of the readers actually can spot it <laughs> and and tell me where it is, uh, yeah, there's it, it, it's it, when you really think about it, it's probably obvious where yeah. it is. But, oh, but yeah,
0: there's a moment whenever. Um, they go from an interior location to an outdoor exactly. and, and, and there's that, a flood that, of light. That's exactly what it is. Yeah.
4: yeah. Yeah. So so the interior there was done at Elton Palace in London. Uh, and the exterior, so walking through, which was supposed to be Howl Roach Studios, yeah. is at Pinewood. Yeah. Okay. So we had a lot of visual effects at that point as well, painting stuff in like the water towers and palm trees and making the sky a bit bluer and taking out some modern street furniture and stuff. So... His advice was, you know, how you keep your actors motivated, how you stop them getting frustrated if, if you have to cut because an extra fucking falls over or something. Am <laughs> yeah. I allowed to say Of course you are. It is encouraged, in fact. Okay, right, great. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so so um, so he was great with that. And he actually, we were in New York a few weeks ago promoting the the movie there, and um, he introduced a screening for us. And I was standing there just off stage, and I was looking, and, and, and I was thinking, my God... Martin Scorsese is about to say my name and welcome me on stage. What the hell has happened, you know? I'm from Peterhead in Aberdeenshire. This doesn't really happen. But yeah, it's been lovely. And, and when I go to New York, he always invites me around and, and he took me on the set of The Irishman. I spent a day on The Irishman. Oh, wow. Sitting there. And I didn't know who was going to be on set that day. I thought it was going to be Bobby Cannavale and Ray Romano because they were two guys who I'd worked with on vinyl. And I thought it was going to be them two. And when I turned up, it was De Niro and Pesci. how many names have I dropped now Chris you're gonna have to count this this is ridiculous right we should do a little bing yeah yeah exactly you do right, a little counter yeah (laughs) but yeah I I did that and I sat I was so I sat next to Mr S the whole day at the monitors right and watched him and he was he was brilliant he was he he talked to me like he 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 was like he was like an uncle I mean he just it was like bringing a family member on set he was so welcoming and I never talked to De Niro and Pesci once. I was way too scared to approach them. Yeah. <laughs> so that whole thing you were asking about, what do you do? I was just, they were at a different level. I was like, I can't speak to them. Just, yeah. I'll just start crying. <laughs> you know? So um, That's amazing. Next time. Next yeah, next time. time we, 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 when I've made sure that i have seen Stan and Ollie, I'll maybe <laughs> uh, you know, have a bit more ammunition to go with this time. Absolutely. But talking of Stan and Ollie, I'm going to drop another name. Uh, but on behalf of John Z. yeah, uh, John was at the Golden Globes yeah. and um, Dick Van Dyke came up to him. And he said, uh, "I knew Stan Laurel, and I've seen your movie, and I cried at the end of this film." And John was just like, "Oh my god!" He was completely gobsmacked, yeah, uh, to hear this, you know. And it's been it's been lovely to see reaction on Twitter. I mean, Mark Hamill, who I know will be a big favourite, a lot of the readers at Empire. He he was a huge Laurel and Hardy fan, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he tweeted a couple of days ago. He said, uh, "He said this is the, one of the best biopics I've ever seen." Yeah. And I was like, really? That's that's a bold statement, Mark, you know. <laughs> uh but lovely to lovely to read, Chris, you know.
0: It is such a it's a lovely film. It, the, 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 it really nails dynamic isn't the right word, I think, for their partnership because there was something about their friendship uh it was so easy going it is tested the film we won't give too much away obviously there's just you know it's mm. historical but uh, there is conflict there is yeah. a little bit of there you know there's a moment where they have to go through a bit of a crucible absolutely uh, but otherwise i think you really capture this this wonderful sense of a friendship that's nearing its natural end and yep. the, the, the the sort of the wistfulness of that and Thank you. I think a huge shock for anyone who saw filth. <laughs> yeah,
4: honest. yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of. You know what was one of the nicest things, Chris? Right, was when it was announced that that I was going to do Stan and Ollie. There yeah. was Obviously, a lot of eyebrows raised, and it was like, <laughs> "What the fuck is this going to be like?" Yeah. And there was an article in the Times that it was quite as it was pretty scathing, and it was it was a bit sort of brutal in terms of. This is probably going to be a... Well, what's it going to be? Is it going to be like Lauren Hardy doing coke and, and cr- cr- cross-dressing, blah, blah, blah? And, <laughs> and and it scared me when I read it because I thought, fuck, that's what people are thinking. But I kept it. I cut the article out and I kept it as inspiration not to mess things up, yeah? And the same journalist gave us a five-star review in the Times. <laughs> and and it was, it was brilliant. And I contacted him and I said, here. I said, that is... I've got a lot of respect for you because the easiest thing for you to do was going, yeah, I told you so. Mm. Told you he was going to muck it up. Yeah. And he, he, he did the other thing, you know. So um, I can't remember why he started talking about art, but, but um, it was a conscious decision, Chris, to do to do something that was a million miles away from filth. Yeah. Because if I, think, if I do another movie like art, that, that's me. Yeah, and that's all I'm going to get. And now all I'm only going to get his biopics, and you know, and, and it's true. I've been sent. I've already. I'm getting all these, th- and I'm like, oh god, here we go. So I'm, I, for so for the next one, I'm looking for something completely different. But I'm talking to Peter Dinklage about doing something with him. Really, it's a really cool idea. Uh, him basically playing a con man who's trying to pass himself off as a leprechaun, um, <laughs> and it sounds and it sounds ridiculous, right? And it sounds oh god, is this going to be like? And it's not, it's actually quite edgy, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, hopefully we'll get the script right and we can shoot that this year.
0: Is it called by any chance Leprechaun?
4: No, but it will be now, and I'm going to have to credit <laughs> you. No, it's called uh, The Leprechaun, no. No, it's called Lucky Day. Okay. Lucky Day. That's what it's called at the moment, whether it's whether it remains that. But,
0: That's going to be cool.
4: Yeah, and I love Peter, you know. He's he's such a cool guy and and very funny, very smart. Yeah. Uh, and deserves all the success. I'm very excited about seeing the last season of Game of Thrones. Are you Game of Thrones?
0: I, I I dabble. Has he told you what happens yet?
4: Yes. No. He, no. No. Is he hell? Is he hell? No way. No way. No. I don't want to know. I want to. I want to watch and see. But uh, no. He, he, he he's very good like that. Uh, they're all. I mean, that's a real tight club. They don't. Oh, yeah. They don't tell anybody anything. Yeah. You know.
0: I wish you all the best with that, but but with uh, but with Stan and Ollie, yeah, was that very much? Was this something that you you sought out specifically? How did they come about?
4: Funnily enough, no, it was. Um, I'd been a fan of theirs since I was a, a kid, but I hadn't thought about them for years and years and years. And the time Filth was released, Philomena was released at the same time. Mm. In fact, it was the Empire Awards. Funnily enough, we were. At, I was at the Empire Awards, and Jeff Pope was there. And I'd seen him at the London Critics Circle Awards and I'd seen him at the Biffes and all this because, we were, you know, we we're on about the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we just got chatting. And then the next week, the script came through. My agent said, oh, there's a script came through about Laurel and Hardy for you, uh, but I don't think it's your thing, yeah? I said, well, let me read it anyway. And I read it and I loved it. And I thought, well, why, have, why has nobody done a movie about these guys before? Yeah. Uh, that was the first thing I thought. And it was a TV script at the beginning. You know, we were going to do it as a TV movie. And then... One of the big sort of changes when John Riley came on board, the script really took a big jump because John had a lot of great ideas in terms of making it more just about the two guys, yeah, mm. and, and and learning information through them rather than peripheral characters or supporting characters, which felt a bit expositional. There wasn't much of the wives uh, in the first versions of the script, but the more we the more we did, the more drafts we did, the more we included the wives, and the more we felt that. The whole piece mm. um, improved. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, because they're, so they're, they're funny, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. girls, yeah. They're, 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 arguably, they get more laughs than the boys do. Mm. Stephen John is where the emotional heart is in the film. Uh, and obviously, they'd recreate the Laurel and Hardy moments, but. The actual big laughs come from well come from Rufus who plays Delphont as well. Yeah, yeah. But especially the the, the two girls. They they yeah. seem with, with a younger audience anyway, this seem, seems to be the girls who get the big laughs.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it was Riley who really kind of was the the galvanizing factor.
4: Well, I I just think that when John came on board, he 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 stepped back and looked at it from a different different point of view and he came up with some ideas that really made me and Jeff think, you know. He's a very clever guy, John, you know. Yeah. Um, and Steve was great with the script as well. Steve, Steve rewrote a lot of the, 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 the chunkier dialogue scenes, you know. So they were both had a lot of input in the script, mm-hmm. a pair of them. But we didn't do any improvisation because I don't like it. I don't like art style. I like to do all that stuff in rehearsals, you know. We had four weeks rehearsals because it had to look really authentic in terms of the recreations especially. So all the all the ideas and especially the girls actually the 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 stuff that was on a the page they completely elevated it and Nina and Shirley would come to me and say look we've been thinking about this and how about if we do this and how about if we do this and they should take a lot of credit for that oh
0: yeah the the sort of spikiness they have towards each other is, is the hilarious. spikiness
4: yeah. but also the spikiness that, that 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 Nina who plays Ida Stan's wife uh, who what she has towards the two promoter Delphont yeah yeah a lot of that. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of that a lot of that she came up with on her own, you know. <laughs> so they have to be given credit, those girls. Uh so
0: Chauncey Riley, who, by the way, I, I feel should have been on there as well, to be honest. And yeah. it's, uh,
4: I don't know how you feel about that. Well, do you know what? I, I What I think is happening is they're cancelling each other out sometimes, you know? And I think, who knows, if there'd been a sixth nomination, John might have been there, but, but because Steve was there, maybe they're splitting the vote, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was the same with Co- Coogan for the Golden Globes. I, I felt like it would have been great if he got on there. But I suppose that's the that's the the, the double-edged sword, you know, when you've got two very strong leads, how do you separate them um and are people voting for both of them or are they just voting for one i mean who who knows so, so does it does yeah. yeah so it's kind of buzz and they're really funny with each other cuz they're they're so good mates now yeah uh-huh. that they'll wind each other up about not being nominated for for you know for and he's got it and you have not and stuff so they <laughs> they're, they're very funny when it comes to when it comes to that you know
0: of course, both of them were uh, shamefully overlooked for their work in Holmes and Watson. So oh, I don't know. Maybe are we going is... to talk about that?
4: <laughs> are we going to talk about that? I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about that. Yeah, um, it's up to you. It's up to you. I would, I, I've, I, I, I've, I've, I've led you artfully into I'll tell this. You what, let's just say I haven't seen the film,
0: <laughs> and just leave it there. That's
4: all I'm going to say. <laughs> I haven't it's seen it. It's film. a
0: delight. You'll catch it on a plane one these days. It'll be good. I hope it'll so. be good. They yeah. share. They share sure a scene together that is magical. Okay, and that's all I'm going to say.
4: All right, can't wait, (laughs) cannot wait.
0: But John obviously has he has a a tricky role. In fact, they both have tricky roles because you want them to create these guys who are natural, organic performances. But at the same time, these are two of the most famous people in history, Mm. and their ticks are there for all the world to see. Mm. Stan, especially, I can't think Mm. of these two without thinking of you know, yeah, this Stan scratching the the head and. And you wanted to recreate that as well. Yeah. What's the process uh, for that?
4: The process is is having a long rehearsal period, and watching Laurel and Hardy movies, and then throwing that all away, and hopefully the residue of, of what was washed over you has is stuck. You know, and really just trusting trusting your actors. You know, John's not a mimic as such, so I think John started with the outside, ends, so he started with the with the fat suit and the prosthetic face and stuff. And and he was like, right, now I look like him, I've now just uh, got to behave, behave like him, yeah. Mm. And Steve started the other way. Steve started with a voice and then built it from the inside out, yeah. Mm. The thing that was most impressive with Steve is, he he could do an impersonation of Laurel, but he needed to be a stan as well. Yeah, 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 And I think that was, that was the most impressive thing for me was seeing Coogan do something that we haven't... I don't think we've ever seen him do before. We all love Alan Partridge, but there's an element of Steve in Alan Partridge. Yes. You know? Yeah. But with Stan, because sometimes when you see Steve in movies, you, you see a little bit of Steve coming through. And, and, and I always used to say, seeing a little bit of Steve, little just pull back a little bit more Stan, yeah? He knew straight away, and he was like, "Bump, absolutely bump!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And He was in it, you know. So it was a long process to get out, but he really impressed McCougan, Did he was, and he's become a very both. They both have become very good friends.
0: John obviously has the fat suit to yeah. contend with as well. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned there in the rehearsal period, there was a fat suit, or, or? yeah, we
4: had the we, we hit the fat suit in rehearsals because he had to when we were doing the dances, he had to feel like what it was going to feel like to dance yeah, as a yeah, twenty yeah. twenty five stone man. And we also had to build in a water cooler into the fat suit because he was overheating so much when he was doing the dancing that we plugged in. Basically, we designed a system that you plugged in the water cooler and it pumped cold water all around his body to cool him down. So, he, I mean, he was in makeup for four hours every day. It was, it was, it was a grueling thing for John Riley. The
0: well, makeup's amazing. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, we could talk all day. We could, we could drop names. Well, all let day, me,
4: John. <laughs> here, let me phone my best pal, Alex McLeish. Let's get back to some more names. Let me get him uh, on a blower and, and see yep. if we can get him on this thing. Next
0: yeah? time you're on the pod, you'll have Alex McLeish with you. That is the John S. Baird guarantee. In the meantime, thanks for coming on. It's been a blast. Thanks, buddy. You too. So, that was John S. Baird there. And uh, since we did that interview, he has indeed confirmed to me that the, Manager of the Scotland football team, Alex McLeish, is up for doing a special podcast with John S. Baird coming in. Alex McLeish, as you heard, is a massive Empire fan, huge film fan, and he's going to come in and do a special podcast. Me, John S. Baird, and Alex McLeish. That's going to be happening at some point in the not-too-distant future. (laughs) What will it be about? What? We're just going to be chatting about films. So there'll be film and football chat? Yeah, yeah. It won't be for with, you, With James. Kenny Dalgleish. I suspect... No, not Kenny Dalglish. although that would be amazing. Kenny, <laughs> if you are listening to this, or if anyone who's associated with the Dalglish family, Kelly Cates, Paul Dalgleish, anyone who can get Kenny Dalgleish in on this podcast, we will offer a subtitled version. Don't worry. It'll all be fine. And then please get in touch, or just anyone. I think this could be my new thing. Film, podcast, but with football people. In fact, I'm going to call it that Chris Hewitt's Film Podcast, brackets, but with football people. And we're going to start with Alex McLeish. So that'll be something for you to listen to in the future. In the meantime, let's talk about movie news. Last week, we had a paucity, a dearth, if you will, of movie news. But this week, we have the opposite problem. Uh, Hollywood is back. It's wide awake now. And we have a surplus of movie news. And we should probably start... Normally, I would afford the Golden Globes the respect that they deserve... Have a bit of silence and then just move on. Mm. But actually, the Golden Globes are worth talking about, I think, this week. Yeah.
2: Let's start with the good stuff. Olivia Coleman. Yes. Uh, winning a Golden Globe for the favourite, up for the BAFTA for the mm-hmm. favourites. Happy, happy day because she's wonderful and everyone loves her.
3: I'm down with that. Mm-hmm. And then there was the rest of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like a lot of the acting winners of the Golden Globes were fine, it was more when you got to Best Picture. Mm. Which they, of course, divide into two categories to give themselves a better chance of looking like they can predict the Oscars, which they emphatically cannot. So we got two winners, a Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody.
0: Yes, and Green Book was in musical or comedy. Yeah. Despite, I haven't seen it yet, but I understand it's not really a comedy mm. and it's certainly not a musical. And then mm. Bohemian Rhapsody was in drama, even though it would fit more accurately in musical and certainly in comedy. But... <sighs> Do you think this means that Bohemian Rhapsody, which uh, is a movie that I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, shall we say. Uh, You know, like I said, uh, I like the music and Rami Malek is very, very good in it. But everything else is a bit lifetime TV movie of the week, isn't (laughs) it really? But yeah, do you think that this has thrown Bohemian Rhapsody into the, the race for... God forbid, best picture?
2: It could go the other way. I mean, you had the situation a few years ago where Argo lost out at the Golden Globes and and then did very, very well at the Oscars. And there was a perception that they saw it as a snub at the Globes and therefore corrected it for the Oscars. So it can sometimes work the other way. Mm -hmm. I think it's a weird year, actually. I would personally give practically everything to if beale street could talk i think it's nuts when we get to the bafta nominations i think it's completely nutty that black panther isn't up for um costume so i might not give that one to beale street but practically everything else it's weird that's barely in the conversation right now early front runners you know things like first man have just completely fallen to aside, side mm-hmm. with the possible exception of claire foy who i think is still in with a chance especially at the baftas on home turf yeah that, um, that
0: seems strange to me that's a Bit of nothing role, really, isn't
2: it? She does a lot with it in an understated way, but mm. yeah, there's does nothing she there.
0: there. Yeah, she you know. does, she yeah. does. It's a, it is a
3: very slight role. But I think she she does make the most of it.
2: And and she is up against supporting actresses who are really the lead actress. Yeah. You know, people like Emma Stone. Mm-hmm. So
0: that is interesting because mm. they clearly made a decision, haven't they, with the Olivia Coleman thing that Olivia Coleman is the best actress from The Favorite, and, and Rachel Faye, yeah. and Emma Stone, who have way more screen time. <laughs> yes. Are the supporting actresses? That's which interesting. Be the other way around. Yeah, mm. people make money based off this mm. stuff. Well, you read they're... the
3: field, don't you? I guess yeah. they're looking at the field, thinking where can we, where are we most likely to pick up awards? Mm. Mm.
0: Let's move on to the Baftas then. The Baftas, the favourite had twelve nominations, and then had a whole bunch of films like Roma and A Star is Born, which mm. which almost went home empty-handed from the Golden Globes. Mm. What do we make of that? Do we think this is a, a, a sort of harbinger of where the Oscars may go?
2: The BAFTAs tend to be a little bit closer to the Oscars than the Golden Globes are, with the caveat that British films and British talent do better in britain yeah so they they do tend to give a weighting to sort of homegrown things and since we appear to be categorizing the favorite that way the the director isn't british but much of the production is Mm -hmm. then that would definitely i think be my favorite if you will for the baftas i don't think that's too controversial to say i certainly think olivia coleman's a front runner and best actress at the baftas um i don't Mm -hmm. know about the oscars because there's some there's some wild cards in there somebody like glenn close Mm -hmm who's been overlooked six times and is Glenn Close. (laughs) has a big advantage when it comes to Oscar Mm -hmm. time. But at the BAFTAs, I think Coleman is is probably comfortably ahead right now. Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, you can have a lead performance with less than an enormous amount of screen time, something like Anthony Hopkins in *Sons of the Lambs I actually don't disagree with because he dominates the film to such an extent and I think arguably she has to do the same she has to make more impact with her limited screen time mm. for everyone else's actions to make sense
0: Not buying it, but hey, listen if it means that Sophie from Peep Show* wins an Oscar I'm all for it. Uh, there's just a couple of things in the in the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes and, you know, this is a bit of a bugbear of ours, uh, particularly on this podcast and particularly, I think, for Helen and I given our, our leanings. Mm. But uh, it does chafe my nipples every year when <laughs> the award season basically turns into well-done movies that came out in this very, very specific period mm. and, uh, you know, they thumb their nose, don't they, at blockbusters. Uh, to not nominate Black Panther for costume and hair and makeup yeah. just seems willfully ignorant in a way, doesn't it? It seems completely
2: bonkers, Genuine It's only up for special visual effects, which is one area where we didn't think it excelled no. as no, much as really everything did. else. Yeah. Um, I genuinely think it's pretty appalling that that isn't up for more. I'm really happy with the documentary nominees. I can say that at least. That's good. Foreign film, great. Mm-hmm. Animated film, they gave a Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse a nod, which is as it should be. So yeah, it's not so bad, but the overlooking of Black Panther, I think, are is mad, just
0: overlooking you know, the blockbusters in general. I mean, mm. you know, we obviously at Empire Fooded Infinity War, <laughs> film of the year, and we talked on a review of the year podcast. I think it's you put number, Quiet Place at number one in yours, but because it's the best, you know, we we love Infinity War, and but yet when it comes to this time of year, mm. those movies are poo pooed, yeah. and, and
2: even someone like uh, Tony Collette, yeah. for Hereditary, that is a phenomenal performance, mm. even if you're snobby about horror films. I don't see how you overlook that it just makes no sense to me do
3: you think it's because they just don't watch the film but there is be, a snobbishness maybe. there is a kind yeah, of sneering
0: is. like oh we can't possibly vote what, vote for Mission Impossible Fallout mm. in this category or that category no it's not a proper movie these are proper movies mm. Green Book is a proper movie yeah. not a that blockbuster nonsense and that just really there is a snootiness can we take any of these organisations seriously knowing that they overlooked Josh Gad for best supporting actor for Pixels just a couple of years ago <laughs>
2: Chris you need to let Pixels let go, it go please
0: stop trying to make Pixels happen or oh I don't know off the top of my head Peter Dinklage for Pixels for Best Supporting Actor mm-hmm. how about Peter Dinklage this year for Avengers Infinity War <laughs> don't do it don't, don't, don't do, do it, it. where don't is, do it. is it no. help me no. find it where's no. the handle and that's exactly why he's asked to leave uh. cinemas <laughs> yeah hey
2: can we talk you about
3: supposed to
0: protect us anything else anything else <laughs> yes please
2: Um, uh, Brad Bird where he's making a movie musical
0: that's nice I know
2: isn't it it's really isn't good is so lovely he of course wrapped up Incredibles 2 earlier this year um, he doesn't know anything about musicals so he figures he should do it because he's definitely afraid of it and that sounds like a cool thing now so, this is something exciting.
0: that he said at a BAFTA tea party
2: sure doesn't that sound
0: lovely I'd love to go to a BAFTA tea party <laughs> wouldn't you love that yeah
2: it's, a, it's an annual event uh, before the BAFTAs to kind of highlight British talent in Hollywood
0: uh huh yeah it's an orgy Helen isn't it <laughs>
2: I mean, I haven't been that's myself, the, so I the can't BAFTA confirm sex a deny. Party.
0: Yeah, let's be clear about it. Yeah. It's like eyes wide shut. They're all running around wearing those masks. <laughs> yeah. this, this smiley face uh, and the, the sad face. Fidelio.
2: As your lawyer, I'd like to make it clear that we have no reason to believe. That- Putting the wood in Hollywood. We have no reason to believe that the BAFTA tea party is in fact a sex party. No, we
0: have no reason to believe, but we have reason to heavily suspect. (laughs)
2: No, we don't. Um, Evidence points to this, No, No, evidence doesn't. (laughs) We don't have any evidence.
0: You sure about this? I'm
2: 100% positive.
0: What we need to do is we need to ask someone who's actually attended one of these uh, sex parties, uh, which I believe they take place in a lay-by off the A4, don't they? No,
2: that's not right either. It takes place in LA.
0: That's my weekend plans. Anyway... (laughs) Let's move on. Thank God. Um, So he's
2: making a musical and it will have an animated element of about 20 minutes of animation. So kind of almost like a Mary Poppins thing. But who does Brad Bird know who can do animation? I mean, where is he ever going to make that happen?
0: Mr. Incredible. Yeah. Tom Cruise.
2: You're just saying names, aren't you?
0: You ask me who, who he knows. I don't know. Michael Chikino. I don't know. Whatever.
2: Michael Chicchino Michael Chikino.
0: All right. Okay. There we go. That'd be exciting. Uh, should we also talk about the film? I think uh, is going to get everyone excited, which is Venom Two. Seems to be confirmed. And ba-dum. it looks, <laughs> Venom, two. Ba-dum, ba-dum, Venom ba-dum, two, Venom Two, Venom Two, Venom Two. So that's going to happen, which is which is very very exciting for everybody, and especially those who have profit participation deals <laughs> <laughs> on that movie. It's the uh, film we all needed, wanted, and were waiting for. Yes. Before. So Kelly Marcel, uh, one of the screenwriters, responsible, and I uh, I can't emphasize enough the word <laughs> responsible for Venom is coming back uh, for Venom Two. But the director. Director Ruben Fleischer does not seem to be returning because he's going to be busy with Zombieland Two, so someone else is going to have to capture Tom Hardy sitting in a fish tank. Well,
2: Lobster they did that. Tank. They did that last time, so he'll probably sit in some other kind of cage this mm. time.
0: <laughs> we didn't like Venom. I think that's fair to say, but enough people did to the tune of eight hundred and fifty-five million dollars. Same thing with Bohemian Rhapsody. That's done incredibly well around the world with lots of Queen Vans going back. Not bothered a jot by the actual quality of the film, it seems, but there was enough promise, I think, in certain aspects of Venom, namely the bit where it ended, but also the relationship between Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock and Venom itself to show the way forward for a sequel. Do you think we will finally get to see here we go. The turd rolling in the wind that we were <laughs> promised at the finale of the first film. <laughs> Hopefully, he'll fight it at the end. That'd be amazing. Are we excited about this? Of course not. It's going to be terrible, but I'll watch it. No, be not no watching. hang
2: on, hang on. It's always Christmas Eve around this, these pirates, James. So, therefore, yes. We yes, hope.
3: It, we hope it will, will that, fulfill the promise that we.
2: No, no. Not fulfill the promise because there wasn't one. We <laughs> hope. That it will be... <laughs> there was some promise. There was tiny flickers of promise it's gonna like in stone. It's going to happen
0: carnage. Jimbo and I saw it together. We weren't unentertained. No, that's
3: actually true. Much like in Gladiator, we were yeah. entertained. We went in with rock-bottom yeah. expectations. Yeah. And, you know... I came out. Them. I was not bored at any point. I did enjoy myself. Was it good? Absolutely not. That's but yeah, fair. It was, okay, it was entertaining. I, mean, I don't know what was going on through half of it, but, you know, <laughs> sure. Why not?
2: But, I mean, we have known there to be sequels that significantly improved on the original it can happen it's a thing that exists
3: it
0: might happen Mm -hmm. you hope that emboldened by the confidence of the reaction to the first movie commercially at least if not critically that they'll go and they'll cut loose with this one but you also hope that they don't kind of atrophy a little bit and they go Mm. well we obviously did so well the first time so we don't have to fix anything it ain't broke so don't fix it well no guys it is broke so you have to fix it but (laughs) anyway hey ho so there you go Phantom 2 it is more
3: excitingly there were two separate bits of Dune use. Oh, I knew it was gonna I knew you were going to do Although oh, I was yes. like, is it
2: going to be Dune first or Game of Thrones first? <laughs> which is he going to go it's for? It's going to be Dune.
3: I'm going to go both Dunes. So Dune has announced two two members of House Harkonnen, which I'm See? very excited about. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård will play the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. And everybody's favourite, Drax the Destroyer, Dave Bautista, will play the Beast Raban. Uh, Baron Harkonnen's son
2: oh is that who he's playing yes very
3: very excited about this film obviously it's Denis Villeneuve's adaptation uh, of one of my favourite books Rebecca Ferguson obviously is in this as the lady Jessica Timothy Chalamet is playing uh, Paul Atreides mm. in it do it's wait. going to be off the chain do we
2: know who who's Leo yet No. Uh, Lito you mean Le- yeah the dad no
3: I don't believe so mm. And and as has already been discussed many times I will be there mm. when it shoots in the sand on a sandworm taking notes Oh, will you now? <laughs> yes. Okay.
2: Uh huh. That's interesting. Um, did you notice that <laughs> Timothy Chalamet dressed essentially as Paul Trudis at the uh, Golden Globes? What in a still suit? No, but he has this weird kind of harness thing, which you know Louis Vuitton calls a bib, but it's clearly a harness. Was it plastic wire fronts like Sting? It looked a bit still suity to me. Okay. Hmm.
3: I'm excited about this. Very, very excited about this. If he gets it right, and there's no reason to think that Denis Villeneuve will not, well. uh, this, this, this could
0: be. I want to pick up on that <laughs> what, no, what no. does that mean
2: I just wasn't a, as big a fan of Blade Runner as y'all were you know oh you fine.
0: you know I wasn't a big fan of that film yeah Borefest 2049 more like Snoozeville Arizona well, see the thing is
2: if you're going to try and fit any percentage of the Dune plot into a film you're going to have to be kept pretty busy so hopefully he'll keep this one moving because there's a lot to happen oh there uh, yeah there's giant lots. worms and space battles and you know
0: all right cool but that's all good uh, and the other thing was hell spells. Uh,
2: the Game of Thrones uh, news, or Game of Thrones prequels news. We've had some casting uh, announced for that one, which is, I think, I think it's fair to say, quite promising. Uh, Naomi Aki, Jamie Campbell Bower, and Georgie Henley. Uh, Henley, sorry, join the new cast. The
3: notorious JCB.
2: The notorious J C. Is that what we're going with?
3: What did you call him? Because he was he was like a he was like a Y A heartthrob, wasn't he mm. for a while? And didn't didn't he go by J C B? Was that a thing? Mortal, mortal I mean, they make they make like like steamrollers and shit, don't they? Yes, yeah. they call him the Digger. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they do. <laughs>
2: Um, So yeah, so this is being uh, directed and I think show run by S.J. Clarkson, who's uh, apparently attached to the new Star Trek movie, if and when that ever happens. The notorious SJC. Which is in itself pretty exciting because, and this is the one one that Jane Goldman wrote as well, I think. So there's women behind the scenes, which there haven't been on Game of Thrones since season four. So that's kind of exciting in itself. It's a good cast. It's a little bit less white than the Game of Thrones cast. Except for the walkers. Yeah. uh, Yes, true. But this isn't walkery, is it? So this one's the, the the speculation at the moment is that this maybe takes in a bit of the summer Isles and goes to places that we haven't seen done to death already yeah. in Game of Thrones. That said, they're still going to be based in Belfast, so there's still going to be Brilliant. some there's Sticking still out. going to be some bits of the north I think in there somewhere. Can be
3: Derry girls meets Game of Thrones.
2: Yeah, but this is obviously a prequel. This is set thousands and thousands of years before the era that we've seen, so there will be no overlapping characters we are assured. Yes. Hurrah.
0: Hurrah. What about you there wee dragon? <laughs> And then finally, we have some news from the Fission and the Scarlet Witch TV show, which is going to be part of the Disney Plus streaming service, which launches, I keep saying next year, but we're now in January, so this year, it'll be launching later this year. And it will feature Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen. They will be back as Fission and Wanda Maximoff, of course. Doesn't mean that that's a spoiler for Avengers Endgame or what may happen in that film or what may happen afterwards. Could be a prequel. Could, yeah. be, could be Vision going shopping for nice sweaters. We don't know.
2: Oh, I would watch that.
0: You think? Yeah. Could be Wanda... Uh, watching Vision deep frying his kebab. It
2: could be a sort of it could be a sort of Queer Eye special, but with Vision instead of the Fab Five. Yeah, and he'd just be explaining to everyone how to wear sweaters and ascots. I think it'd be great.
0: It'd be lovely, wouldn't it? Mm. We, we would probably genuinely watch eight episodes <laughs> of that. Uh, anyway, it's got a new showrunner, and uh, well, or uh, just a showrunner, and that is Jack Schaefer, who is a co-writer of Captain Marvel, and uh, I think Soul Rider on the Black Widow movie, which is in development over at Marvel Studios as well. So she is going to oversee that eight-part show. Hurrah! Exciting times. Brilliant. We done? Shall we have another guest then? Meh, okay. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) Custom dictates, we must have a second guest. Uh, And our second guest is, again, a BAFTA nominee, freshly minted BAFTA nominee, and quite rightly so, for he is fantastic in Stan and Ollie as Stan Laurel. It is the brilliant Steve Coogan. You'll know him. Oh, what's the thing you'll know him from? All those shows with Alan Partridge that James loves so much. Uh Aha! Coogan is fantastic in this and I had a bit of a blast chatting to him today about that, about working with Rob Brydon with the fourth series of The Trip coming up as well. A little bit about that as well. Uh, Doing Julian impressions. We didn't do that though. You'd be glad to know. And uh, talking about all sorts of other stuff as well. So do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined in the Emperor podcast by
1: the BAFTA-nominated star of Stan and Ollie, Steve Coogan. How are you, sir? Um, Very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Congratulations. Thanks. Yes, it's very, very nice to be uh, better than a kick in the teeth, as they say. (laughs) Is that usually how you get woken up on a Wednesday morning with someone kicking you in the teeth,
0: or it's Um, much better to have a bath? Well, maybe in the old
1: days, not anymore. But um, but, uh, yes, so uh, it's very, very nice. You know, you work hard on something, and Mm. uh, I mean, I do feel slightly odd that John, my compatriot in in, in, uh, this film, is overlooked uh, on this occasion, but, um, but he received a Golden Globes nomination and I didn't, so I feel like it was sort of even Stevens. <laughs> okay, so did he gloat when he got a Golden Globe and you didn't? No, and- no, the reverse. He sort of was very uh, apologetic, but of course delighted. Um, <laughs> and I have to do the same now to him. You know? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so congratulations to the performance. It's a fantastic performance.
0: And it would have been easy, I guess, to just mimic Stan Laurel. You are a natural-born mimic. Obviously, we've seen plenty of evidence of that over the years. Uh, but you bring an inner life to
1: him as well. Well, thank you. That's the, that's the key thing. You know, uh, mimicry is something that is a, a wonderful uh, thing, actually. But it's just a it's a skill. It's a, it's a skill, and it's a it's not an end in itself. It's a good tool to have mm. in your in your bag. Is it where you start? Um, it, funnily enough. Yes, sometimes it is. And that's not really what you're supposed to say as an actor. You're supposed to say, well, though you start with uh, doing research and you, if you're playing a tramp, uh, you have to go and live like a tramp for five weeks if you're yeah. doing this kind of a film, or whatever, and you have to sort of start from the inside out. And whilst that may be work for most actors and, and some most and a lot of brilliant actors actually work that way, and some actors and some quite eminent ones, and, and I like to work this way as well, start with physical attributes and physicality, and you can use that and then work backwards. Okay. So actually doing a voice, I mean, when I used to do impersonations, I, I would uh, do the gestures and the facial expressions and the voice all at the same time. They'd all come at the same time. They're all part of the same thing. So when I started doing Stan Laurel, I just, you know, his expressions, and the way he spoke, it was, it was, it was sort of like that. Yeah. And I had a certain way of doing him that was you know and and uh, his expressions were all very sort of you know his eyebrows would be perking ten to the dozen so you sort of yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. so that was just ah. a voice but yeah that sort of gives you a clue as to who someone is and you can sort of um reverse engineer y- y- your character by using the, the external stuff yeah, yeah yeah, using that as a clue or an indicator of who who that person is underneath and and uh It can sort of work. I mean, you have to do the research as well. You have to find out about this person listens to them being interviewed, find out what makes them tick, Mm. uh, look at the way they move, and -hmm. and, and you sort of assemble something from bits. And then the way you you imagine they talk or their, their attitude, you get as much information as possible, and you fill in the blanks by making an educated guess
0: is that something that's changed over the years? As your as your approach to that changed, even back in the days when you were doing just quote unquote impressions. Did uh no, no, of
1: course, impressions. No, absolutely not. I didn't when those, <laughs> those days. I just did a, did the voice, did a voice the it? and said that sounds like someone really famous. That's funny. <laughs> um, that's done. Job you know, done. Thank yes, you very much. That, yeah, exactly. So no, it's it's. Uh, but I didn't really have I find it satisfying doing impersonations. I always found it was just like, even though it made people laugh, which always slightly puzzled me because. To me, it's like watching uh, someone do a conjuring trick, or watch someone do acrobatics. It's sort of impressive. You go, "Wow, that's impressive," but you don't. It doesn't really touch you in any way. It doesn't move you. It doesn't make you. It doesn't stay with you. You don't watch a trapeze artist and think a week later, "Oh my god, I'm haunted by that trapeze <laughs> artist." It's just something you watch and go, "Wow." Uh, when I made people laugh by doing impersonations, I felt slightly like I was cheating because it was a trick that I knew how to do, and. Uh, so as years went on, I just wanted to. I just thought, look, it's really useful to be able to do that, to be able to change your accent. And but yeah. uh, I spent years really trying to get away from being a light entertainer because I had a strange. career. I started out on with you know on on Sunday night at the London Palladium mm. with Jimmy Tarbuck mm. in thirty years ago. Wow, which is sort of like the strange entry onto into, into um, the media and entertainment it was on on prime time television doing sort of. In my shiny suits, doing funny, yeah. funny voices and I've tried to sort of gain gravitas over the last 30 years. It's worked.
0: Cheers. It's worked, man. You've done all right. But every now and again on the trip, you and Rob Brighton will slip
1: back in the impressions. and, um, and Yeah, I know. You well, know. It's funny, when we're doing that, Rob and I improvise, obviously, a lot of that. And Michael on the director, will just shout at us, just do some funny voices. He's <laughs> like, I don't really care what your opinions are. Just uh, do some more funny voices. This is the price you pay for eating all this great food and traveling to all these great places. Yeah, now and yeah. again, you have to do a Pacino off. Well, it's not a bad price to pay. I have to say. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, I this, this we're doing we're doing another one, which will be the fourth one we've done, which is bizarre when I think about it because the first one was very much an experiment. Mm. Uh, worked out, and um, I'm doing another one with Rob this year, and I'm looking forward to it because. Uh, oh wow, that's great. However much iras- however irascible we are with each other, I do um, like his company a lot. Yeah. And uh, could you say anything more about that? I'm very excited about a, a new trip. Where, where are you going to be it, tripping? We're going to Greece. Okay, fantastic. I can't be more specific than
0: that. <laughs> in I case people follow a, you
1: around, people follow us around. Oh, that would be quite interesting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. That would be a bad
0: idea. But that's interesting because obviously the last trip ended with you in a particularly precarious
1: situation, and so I'm glad that um, I'm glad yeah. that you are here. Yes, it was, it was quite odd the last one. I like funny things that end on not a funny note. <laughs> I don't know why. It's something quite... In- I like people to laugh a lot, and then I love the idea that people can laugh at something and have a really great time and then be slightly discombobulated at the end and not yeah. given a joke. So they walk away <laughs> going, I'm slightly troubled.
0: I'm, I'm troubled and I'm concerned for Steve Coogan,
1: mm. is how I came out of the trip, <laughs>
0: Series 3. Uh, one last thing on that before I, I get back at the Stan and Laurel. Uh, Stan, Stan and Laurel, Stan and Ollie. You're... Uh, Impression offs with Rob are incredibly influential. We do in the Empire Office, like we will, occasionally lapse into Michael Caine, but we're
1: not doing Michael Caine. We're doing your impression of Michael Caine. Yeah. Do you find that? Well, I do. Look, even impressionists find that. I I remember years ago, um, I couldn't quite figure out how to do Ronnie Corbett, and I heard uh, Rob Newman, who no longer does impressions, was a Uh very uh, respected comic performer, and. Uh, great intellect he did a brilliant ronnie corbett and i sort of stole his ronnie corbett really because i saw when you when you listen to someone else do the voice you get a clue as to how to do it uh, although you know i sort of tried to dump impersonations it's quite nice doing them with rob um yeah it's kind of nice because it's sort of like doing something it's like a guilty pleasure i suppose mm. but uh you you learn tricks for example with ronnie corbett you you, you, this, b- and by, by the way, this will be completely lost on uh, any <laughs> listener who's aged under forty. <laughs> Good heavens! You know, it's one of those impersonations that uh, <laughs> you uh, <laughs> digress at your peril. <laughs> so, um, well, wow. Is a key there the laugh? Well, it was. Yeah, it was hearing do that laugh. The sort of. The sort of <laughs> In between, and it uh, I thought, oh, that's the secret of that one,
0: yeah. amazing.
1: And uh, obviously, Stan and Oli uh,
0: focuses on possibly the greatest double act of all time. You have you've you've had collaborators throughout your career, but you've, I guess, avoided the double act,
1: yes. I have. I mean, the closest thing I've come to really is working with Rob Bryden. Yeah. It is actually a double act, to be honest with you. Uh, m- when I look back, look at it now, I go, well, yes, of course, it is. It's like I'm pompous and pretentious and Rob is grounded and affable and uh, it's sort of, you know, that sort of, a, yeah, that, that works as double acts. Um, I have t- tended to avoid that. The cleverest thing I ever did in my career was find really clever, funny people and attach myself, limp it like, <laughs> to them and work with them. So I've yeah. collaborated with people, but, but, uh, but like, you know, Armando Iannucci, Patrick Marber, uh, the Gibbons brothers, uh, yep. Henry Normal, Carolina Hearn, craig cash uh lots of smart intelligent people jeff pope you know that's either uh machiavellian or, or <laughs> pragmatic uh, but but um i tend to work with people who let me sort of i'm the one in the spotlight yeah and i've worked with people who are clever mm-hmm. but aren't competing with me in that way really they sort of uh there tends to be the grown-ups you know, in all these collaborations. <laughs> That's interesting. And I've got a love of comedy, I think, which is... Uh, even though I, I do love drama, I do love touching people somehow through narratives um, that are have an emotional level. I like to use comedy, as well as we talk about impersonations, I like to use comedy as a kind of a way of sugaring the pill of, as a writer, of more complicated or more... Weighty subject mm. matter to take the curse off it, so you don't feel it's it's portentous.
0: It's fascinating the way you've you've addressed, you know, not not only um, the evolution of characters. I mean, obviously Alan Partridge over many many years in different media as well, which I find really really fascinating how that character has progressed. Mm. But you've addressed your own life as well and your own shortcomings and foibles. Mm-hmm. in things like The Trip and bull Story, which I, I find fascinating.
1: Yeah, well, I think you sort of, to define yourself, you don't have to play by rules that other people establish. Yeah. You don't have to say, people say this, so then you have to respond to them. I go, well, I'll, I'm creative. I don't want to get into a dialogue with tabloid newspapers or, or play that game. I'll use what I do in my creative process and I'll communicate through the work I do. Mm. It's the most effective thing to do. If you're creative, just be creative. If you have, a, if you have a point of view about something political or even, or any, or any anything, it doesn't even have to be political, but just a, a point of view, a world view, yeah. or how you should conduct yourself, or what you think is important. You can try and engage someone or who might have a different view and have an intellectual argument with them and, mm-hmm. and a discourse, mm-hmm. or you can just tell a story that, if you like, encapsulates. Uh, your point of view. And telling stories is a far more persuasive way of uh, communicating than just saying, this is what I think. (laughs) Fully agreed. And going on to you,
0: Stan and Ollie. Uh, It was written by Jeff Pope. Obviously, you wrote Philomena with with Jeff, but Jeff is the sole writer on this. Did you were, you? were you tempted to collaborate with him on on this? Or? Uh, well, I did. I mean, I, it,
1: it's Jeff's script, but Jeff, did I did sit. I did sit down, and go through it with him, and give him my opinion on stuff, uh, and say, you know, what I thought of it, and uh, he listened to me because, in the same way that I would listen to him, and I've asked him in the past to look at scripts that I've. Uh, written or I've collaborated with someone else on I'll mm. I say Jeff will you please okay. will you take a look at this? Yeah, so, yeah. and I, so I did that with Stan and Ollie. Obviously I'm, I'm gonna be in it so I'm saying well <laughs> why don't I say this? You know, and suggest yeah. the odd thing. But yeah. it's Jeff's script. Yes. Yeah. So slowly taking out all, all these lines and then just <laughs> <laughs> giving yourself it, a few It's more. just hit he- here and there, here and there. Because you you know because I am a writer, it's not like I don't know it can be annoying if you're a writer. I know yeah. if, if an actor comes along. I know this because I've, I've, the shoe's been on the other foot. Yeah, and I've written lines for other people to say, come on and go, can I say it like this? And I feel like saying, <laughs> no, you can't. You can say it the way it's written, mate. So I understand that thing. Uh, but uh, Jeff and I have got a lot of respect for each other, so we, we're prepared to listen to each other.
0: And uh, I, I talked to uh, John S. Baird yesterday and he told me about the, the rehearsal process on this, which was about four
1: weeks, something like that. Uh, yeah, that's right. John Esper drove this, I think. Mm-hmm. His enthusiasm was infectious, and even when everyone else was grumbling, going, mm, will it be any good? Maybe it'll be rubbish, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. He was always, we've got to do this. You've got to play this role. It's going to be great. Just real um, infectious. So eventually, sort of like his enthusiasm, you just submit to it, and yeah. it's easier. I mean, from the outset, I was, uh, I, I was anxious about it. But we had three weeks, four weeks of rehearsal, where ostensibly we were just rehearsing the dances and the sketches and some of the physical things we do in the film mm. with Toby Sedgwick, who mm. is a sort of clown advisor and does work at the National Theatre and very well respected and a really lovely bloke, actually. And so we, we went in every day and just went through the physical stuff while, while John S. Baird was prepping the movie. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, But in actual fact, during the, the, during the dance rehearsals, something else happened, which is John C. Riley and I got to know each other very well. As ourselves, and mm. also developed a kind of a rhythm with each other uh, as Stan and Dolly. Um, because the toughest thing, really, in making this film is not the you know, the physical stuff and the prosthetic stuff and looking or sounding like them, which you, you can do with a bit of practice and, mm. and move like them. Uh, it's trying to get under the skin and, and bring them to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and make the, the relationship yeah. between them authentic and make the audience care because the audience don't care about them feel invested in some way, you haven't got a film. It doesn't matter how clever or or well-rehearsed your dancers are. That's what makes the film work, I think. Uh, that John and I also had a sort of personal connection and a trust with each other that Mm. translated into a relationship that represented the the one that Lauren Hardy had. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It goes back to that thing I said at the beginning about the inner life of, of Stan. It's there for both Stan and Ollie in this movie. So that, you know, not to give anything away in the movie, but when they do have nakedly emotional moments with each other you really feel it you really feel the weight of those years of, of friendship and in some cases enmity as well I agree yeah <laughs> I realised I realised that wasn't an open-ended question Steve but you know, it's fine it's, it's all good um, so this film was shot because obviously you had worked with John
1: on that one scene in Holmes and Watson but was that before no, or that, after that this? that was after Okay. I was saying the other day, <clears throat> because people have said some really nasty things about uh, the Homes of Watson and say it's a load of rubbish and everything, but I was saying the other day uh, to John that, you know, the people are saying, oh, it's a load of rubbish and all this. But I think, you know, in 20 years' time when the, the dust has settled and people are able to look at Holmes of Watson objectively, I think people will say it's still rubbish. <laughs> There you go, that's what I think. <laughs> I wonder where you're going with that. I was trying to, I was trying to get an out. I, was I know, try- yeah, sorry, there you go. It's <laughs> just a long-winded, half <laughs> no,
0: joke. No, no, I was, I was going, he's going to, go, it's going to be held as a masterpiece. I was going, yes, yes, Steve. Yeah, well, yeah. we'll see how, how it goes. No, it's,
1: it's a load of rubbish. I
0: do it for the, <laughs> do it for the money. Can um, I say your you're, you're scene elevates the
1: movie? Can I say that? Oh, if you like, yeah. Can I say I, it by looking you in your eye? I don't think I'll be watching the movie because it'll be two hours <laughs> of my life and I'll never get back.
0: There's always a plane, and you can always fast forward to your your bit, and then just get out. Exactly. There's some funny stuff moments, Watson. I said in the I'll podcast. Ta- I'll take your word for Yeah, there it, you go. But... Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, normally, I ask people what they're doing next, but I know what you're doing next because we received an email this week uh, from Alan Partridge about his new <laughs> BBC show. Oh yeah, yeah. Which this was, was uh, fantastic. Um, so very, very excited about that.
1: Yeah, well, we—it's funny. You sort of do this work, and and you you, you know you go away, and you do bits of work, you do a film, you do th- TV stuff, and then it all sort of comes to—it's all banked, and it's some—it all sort of emerges at the same time, like like buses. Have um, you forgotten that you did it? Uh, no, because I was in the edit with okay. the guys going <laughs> tweak, tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. I mean, I've got to say, the Gibbons, Robin Neil Gibbons, are brilliantly obsessive in terms of right to the wire. T- tweaking this and tweaking that and putting an extra line in here. Mm. It's very dense. I think it's uh, definitely uh, as funny as the first series of Iron Man and Partridge. It's better than the second series of Iron Man and Partridge, I think. Wow. And its uh, its best moments, I think, are up there with the day-to-day, the, the, the best moments in it. I mean, I can't wait for people to see it because we worked ruddy hard on it and it's got some really... My favourite kind of funny is when you don't know why something's funny; it just is. There's a a few of those moments in it, and I can't wait for people to see it. You know, we worked hard now. I think it's it's tough because you know lots of fans out there. Like, you know, there's always like when's you going to jump the shark, sort of thing. You know, and I not yet is the answer (laughs) (laughs) sorry to disappoint you people Partridge
0: is still great awesome Steve Coogan it's been a pleasure man thank you so much Steve okay so that was Steve Coogan and now let's start off our new and improved cinematic reviews section with Stan and Ollie which is not a biopic not a conventional biopic this focuses specifically on one period in their lives when towards the end of their careers uh, when their star had fallen somewhat in Hollywood Laurel and Hardy Laurel of course being British came to Britain for a tour of theatres and it didn't go so well initially, at least. Uh, here's a clip, in fact, to get you up to speed.
1: Pretty empty last night. I guess people just don't want to see Laurel and Hardy anymore. Has he been pushing you a little too hard, babe? You know Stan.
4: You could have said goodbye, Oliver, a long time
3: ago.
1: We had a good thing going, but you had this big chip on your shoulder because I did a picture with someone else. I couldn't sleep for days when they told me what you did. You're just a lazy ass who got lucky because you met me. Lucky
3: to spend my life with a man who hides behind his typewriter. You betrayed me. Betrayed our
1: friendship. You're hollow.
0: You like that? That was a clip. An actual clip. I loved it. But let's now talk about Stan and Ollie, which is a film I literally keep calling Stan and Laurel. <laughs> I can't stop myself and I don't know why, but I thought this was a fantastic film, Hell's Bells.
2: Yeah, absolutely loved it. Um, I think they're both brilliant as the characters and um, they're really, really good at doing the performances, first of all. So there is an element of this film where they do you know, Laurel and Hardy numbers, and those are great, and they have to be, you have to get why people adored these people, you have to get why they were the biggest stars in the world at one point, and they they absolutely sell that stuff, but then they also are great at the the behind-the-scenes stuff, and the complete, almost 180s that these characters took behind the scenes, because Laurel is the more sort of intellectual, driven, ambitious, focused one, despite playing the idiots or the more idiotic on screen. And Hardy is very easygoing, very big hearted, very laid back, you know, just content to kind of let things ride, let things happen, and often get himself into disastrous scrapes as a result. And it's, yeah. a, it's an incredibly effective contrast of the two personalities. And the way that they work together is... It's gorgeous because ultimately this is, I think, a, a film about their friendship. It's been through some tough times. Their careers basically fell apart because they didn't stick together at a moment when certainly Laurel thinks they should have done. And uh, mm. and it's, it's whether they can ever really get the sort of the magic back mm. between them. And, and I think it's a really, really beautiful story in that sense. And also their wives are fantastic mm. here.
3: It's a period of their career that I didn't know anything about either, so it's actually really interesting. But as you say, it's so touching, and it is a love story between these two men. Mm. It's incredibly affecting, and I'm not ashamed to say I was, you know, allergic to something towards the end of the film. <laughs> it was a
2: dusty cinema, It really, really was. There was stuff in the air, mm.
3: cats, I think, must have been cats, sitting on the seats cats. or something. Jellicle cats. Uh, yes, quite possibly. Uh, no, really, really lovely film, and two fantastic performances too. Just, just really, yeah. really nice. Took me by surprise.
0: Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Mm. You may have heard me say in the interview with John John S. Baird that it is interesting and it starts off it is kind of funny at the beginning and you know, you have to get that sense of who they were as a comedic partnership mm. as well. But uh, it is a melancholic film, Mm. ultimately. A really lovely one, a really bittersweet, you know, this is not an insult in any way. It's a lovely Sunday afternoon movie. I can really see this appealing to people who are somewhat older, uh, or maybe our age, which is somewhat older. (laughs) But uh, people who maybe don't go to the cinema that often, uh, I think will be really, really enchanted by this. And it's, it's, it's rhythms, it's particular rhythms. It's a very, very sedate movie. It's really, really beautifully performed. And The Wives played by mm. Shirley Henderson and Nina Arianda, are fantastic. And they take up the comedy slack of yeah. the movie as Stan and Ollie sort of move into a more serious yeah. uh, territory. And they're really, really funny. They're little, sni- they snipe at each other. They snipe at other people. Rufus Jones, who's a brilliant actor as well, is very, very good. As Delfont, who's the sort of, well, the, one of the things I can't really get a handle on whether he's unscrupulous or just incompetent booking manager. <laughs> who has I, I think the latter. But there's, there, you could, it's open to interpretation. But I thought it was really, really lovely, uh, indeed, and um, and really well performed. Coogan, I think, deserves the nomination. But I think John C. Riley did as well. I and think I, I'm a little excellent. bit astounded that yeah. he didn't get a nomination because mm. they really inhabited those two. Like it's it's quite uncanny at times. Yeah. Mm. It really is
2: it is a great film. It makes you want to go back and watch all of the Laurel and Hardy films, Uh-oh. which by the way, I did uh, see a few recently. I was in l a last year and I went to the Egyptian and saw Sons of the Desert, which was perfect setting wise and um, and a few of the shorts and they are just so good they're still so funny um, and I think people should maybe just go and see this and then get into a whole Laurel and Hardy fix. I think that would be the ideal but it's it's one it's just a really lovely film and a really nice look at a slice of cinema history
0: indeed. Uh, Four stars then for Stan and Ollie. Not Stan and Laurel. Well
2: done. You said Stan and Laurel. I did it with
0: Steve Coogan. I said Stan and Laurel to Steve Coogan. I felt like such an idiot. Anyway, (laughs) more so than usual. Four stars then for Stan and Ollie, uh, which brings us neatly on now to Colette, which is a biopic of the French author Colette, who, of course, was possibly most widely known for her 1944 novella, Gigi. (laughs) She was, I don't know, Helen, she was a French author, Uh a woman of letters she was also known as a mime actress and journalist and you will know perhaps more than anyone else that she was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1948
2: well done Chris thanks for that Uh, yes this is actually set a little bit before that
0: I just wanted you to know that I knew that
2: of course you did I never doubted it for a moment here's a clip my name is
0: Claudine I live in Montaigne I shall probably not die there
1: beautiful we've never had one fly off the shelves like this before and you know who's buying it young women
4: really Willie, your book will change the world
1: claudine
0: subtle as ever
1: i have a little plan to turn claudine into the most popular girl in the entire world i believe willie based claudine on your school days
2: yes i think i had a little something to contribute
0: Okay, so let's delve deeply into Colette. That sounded wrong. I should rephrase that, but I won't. I'm going to move on. Jimbo, do some delving. Uh, I
3: not only very much enjoyed this film, I did a very long interview with Kieran Knightley about this film, which is in the you issue of Empire. F- oh, right? yeah, sorry, that name. <laughs> Hang on, yeah. you me just that up. Uh, you'll Carson find that John in S. Baird, the new... John my good friend. <laughs> you'll find that in the new issue of Empire. On sale now. Uh, I enjoyed this. I didn't know an awful lot about Colette, the author. And I think... Well... Well, which which she I know you did. She possibly most
0: widely known for her 1944 novella Gigi, which subsequently was the basis for the film and Learner and Low stage production of the same name. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. It's good. What's
3: interesting about this is partly its timeliness. It feels very much of the now, and yet Wash uh, Wash has been trying to make this for what like. 10, 15 years. So it's been a long time in the offing and they sort of finally come here. And it's the telling of a very early part of her life, kind of from her childhood until she kind of establishes herself. She had a very long career and lived well into, I want to say, her 70s doing much the same thing and this is partly uh dominic west as her husband Willy, the established author who takes credit for her work which is the claudine novels which became very famous at the time but yeah i think she plays this role extremely well it's very uh it's helped by the fact that dominic West's character willie is a horrific end, and <laughs> no but no but it is to dominic west credit that you are drawn to him. Describe that. It would but, have been very easy to play yeah. that role differently. Yeah. He specialises in that, doesn't he? he? Does, like, Melty
0: yes. is a horrendous
3: yeah. Lovable bellends is his is his calling <laughs> card. That really makes this film work. That you you on the one hand he's detestable, but on the other hand he's very charismatic with it. He kind of draws you to him, and they make an interesting couple because mm. they're like a an old world celebrity. Couple. Oh yeah, like yeah. you could imagine them being like Instagram stars if <laughs> they're around now. Like they were doing marketing and product placement and pushing their stuff out there. It was the most twenty first century, mm. you know, celebrity yeah. experience ever.
2: And it's interesting that she comes into this as the sort of the the sheltered girl from mm. the country. You know, she doesn't wear the right dress to her first outing. You know, <laughs> yeah. on on his arm and and is kind of aware of that and sort of then just sets about establishing herself in this kind of countercultural world and basically takes it over yeah. and displaces him. So they have this sort of, you know, he's very happy when it's kind of master-pupil relationship, but the moment that she kind of pushes beyond that, then the relationship is really, really tested. It's not tested by their rampant infidelity to each other. Um, <laughs> with
3: the same person. With, occasionally with the <laughs> same person.
2: So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's racy, this one. If you went in expecting a nice, safe, costumed drama with Bloody a lot of hell. corsets... It's the, they loosen the corsets pretty darn it's, they quick. They
0: do. Raunchier than a BAFTA tea party.
2: <laughs> Chris, Allegedly. Again. No, only by you, Chris. Only by you.
0: It's interesting
3: because it does address kind of uh, gender roles and gender norms in this and what I found quite interesting is what was and wasn't acceptable in that kind of Libertine Paris era Mm. because I would have thought all bets were off because that period is quite famous for its sort of like sexual freedom and hedonism Mm. and yet there were still taboos. Oh gosh Like Women kissing on stage was a big deal then. Yeah. Uh, So it's very interesting to see what what worked and what didn't work, and what she could and couldn't, you know, get away with within the confines of that sort That's of. That's it. I, society. I think
2: it's within the sort of intellectual elite you can yeah. do whatever you wanted, but yeah. when you put it on stage for the public, yes. then suddenly, whoa then you've got hello. issues.
3: But it's beautifully, like the costume design in this and the production line is amazing. Like yeah. it's an absolutely sumptuous film. So this is directed by Wash Westmoreland.
0: Yes, it is indeed. Well directed. It probably. is, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well directed, great story, well written, it's well told, it's mm. very well acted. And so, like, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but like Stan and Ollie. It's focusing very much on the specific period of Colette's life. Yeah. It's not a yeah. biopic
2: Yeah, but it's it's se. quite a long period in the sense yeah. that, you know, she goes from, I think she's sort of in her teens yeah, when we meet is. her, into uh, at least her early 30s, if not mid to late 30s.
4: So
0: does it cover, again, I haven't seen this yet, but would it cover, for example, the period where she wrote Claudine à l'école uh, or Claudine et or <laughs> Le Retrait Sentimental or La uh for example, or maybe the later stuff that she did in her career, like <laughs> oh, Le Seconde or Le Chat, the uh, Cat. Le I, cha. I'm, I'm or, very much
3: enjoying you, Colette, to us. Or Le Toile
0: Fesper, mm. brackets 1947. Not so much that. The Claudines are very much in, right. a, Claudine. in effect. Claudine, yes. Okay, that's yeah. good. Cue <laughs> Le Claudine. <laughs> Sacre bleu. Okay. Wow, brilliant. <laughs> Sounds right. great. Anyway, yeah. so
2: quatre étoiles.
0: Yeah. What? That's right. Four stars. Yeah. Four stars then for Colette, And that brings us on to our last film of the week, which is The Front Runner. It was once a front runner. Now it is not the front runner. But yet it remains the front runner. And this is the story of Gary Hart, played by Hugh Jackman, who was a front runner to become the Democratic uh, candidate for the presidential race in 1988. But then an affair, bracket S, close brackets, came to light and derailed his candidacy. Uh, it is directed by Jason Reitman and has a cracking cast, including the likes of J.K. Simmons and of Farmiga. And uh, here is a clip.
4: Gary Hart is the man to beat in 88.
0: If we hold ourselves to those highest standards, then the voters cannot do otherwise.
1: Senator, I want to ask you some questions about the woman at your townhouse. Can you tell us how you know her? You can't
0: be serious. No one is staying in my home. There's no need for that.
1: Uh, I, I am serious, sir. The one thing I asked was that you don't embarrass me. We can't hide from this. The cameras go everywhere. It's It's up to us to hold these guys
3: accountable. Just because some other paper used gossip as front page news, I mean, that doesn't mean we have to. It does. It does now. He is a man with power, and that takes certain responsibility.
1: We need to say something. It's nobody's business. None of it is. Okay,
3: but we're not talking about that. We're talking about how you get through today.
0: Okay, so last chat about the front runner, Jimbo. It was you and I, cozied up in the cinema, phones tucked away in a yonder pouch. That's right. What do we think of this?
3: Well, this, as you say, is Gary Hart, who couldn't keep it in his yonder pouch. And <laughs> uh, I mean, this is a this is a Jason Reitman production, but it's very much I think Hugh Jackman's film. Like he dominates this. He's extraordinarily good, although slightly, I would say, in many ways, acted off the screen by a more salient screen presence that of <laughs> his wig. Which, all the way through, I could not take my eyes off. It's extraordinary. It's me- mesmerizing, isn't it? It's
0: <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. I don't know. It's get, it gets co top billing. It doesn't look like real hair. <laughs> no. And that's the thing that really throws me.
2: But, like, I mean, politicians' hair in America generally doesn't look but like real hair. Gary right? Hart,
0: so. you look at pictures of Gary Hart, and you look at pictures of Hugh Jackman's got lovely hair. He's yeah. got. Lo- mm, you, you he know. does, yeah. Who amongst. Who here has not, at some point, wanted to run their fingers through Hugh Jackman's hair?
2: On my lawyer's advice, I'm not going to admit anything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you look at pictures of Gary Hart in the 1980s, and mm. he had hair that looked like hair, not that something you know, someone scraped off a barber's floor at the end of the day and then just kind of prit-sticked to Hugh Jackman's head and went, that'll do, mate. You know the bit at the end of X-Men 2 where they did some reshoots and it's a bit where (laughs) Gene has died and Jackman was already on to Van Helsing by that point and so he had the big long hair extensions and they they couldn't cut his hair off for Van Helsing so they just made his Wolverine wig like 10 feet tall. (laughs) It feels like that sometimes. There are scenes in The Front Runner where his hair is just kind of levitating above his head and it's just... Massive Lego hair. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> it is all of those things. I Four want one. stars for the film, yeah. two stars for the hair. Should we say any more about this film? we I mean, probably should it. J.K. Simmons it. is good in it as well, but uh, he doesn't have hair. He doesn't have hair. Take some of the hair of Hugh Jackman's head and just sell it to J.K. <laughs> Simmons. Spread the love, man. There are a lot
3: of wigs in this film, but none quite live up to that one. the thing with this one on the one hand this draws interesting parallels so it's about the 1988 race and it's about how he seems genuinely put out by the fact that they are bringing up his personal life in a primary campaign the fact he doesn't believe that his personal life should have anything to do with it and someone at one point says it's not 1972 anymore it's not even 1982 you can't be doing that kind of thing anymore you know you can't be fucking around when you're on the campaign trail on the one hand that that it deliberately shines a parallel on what's happening these days but on the other hand it's quite difficult to get invested in a quote unquote scandal that involves a woman was seen leaving his apartment when you know we've got payoffs to porn stars we've got you know boasting (laughs) about sexual assault we're in barnum and bailey territory at the moment so it seems so quaint It's ridiculous.
2: We're in Barnum and Bailey Bailey territory, like P.T. Barnum. Well, yes. The greatest showman. (laughs) Yes. Well, you can see why they'd make this then. You can.
3: You You can. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, yeah. So on the one hand, it's interesting and it does hold a mirror up to where we are at the moment. On the other hand, it's a real sort of Trump, I, I, I moment where you realise how far we've fallen, where you've gone from the 70s, where... People could get away with this stuff mm. to the eighties and sort of nineties where they had to clean up their act until right now where you can basically just murder someone in Times Square and still be elected to public office. So you know, yay! Absolutely,
0: it feels very quaint, doesn't in, it, in that way? Because here again is a man, and the, the movie goes to great lengths to spell out how brilliant he is mm. and how perfect he and is, progressive, and progressive, yeah. and progressive, and and smart, and uh, he's a big fan of the works of the French author Colette, for example. <laughs> uh, uh he wouldn't have to like Wikipedia her in a panic. Uh and yet he's brought down by Liz. And you know, listen we should we shouldn't condone his indiscretions at all and we're not. But compared to that, you know, speaking of weird, rampant sentient Whigs, that thing in the White House <laughs> at the moment, compared to that, it's it's uh it's night and day. Mm. Yeah.
2: I mean the current climate is a problem, isn't it? For yes everyone in ter- I mean it's a problem for everyone but it's also a problem in particular for those seeking to make fiction because mm. it's really hard to figure out where the lines of reality like, are even Mars anymore. attacks
0: looks,
3: looks yeah, yeah. realistic but now Did you say that but they had that same problem with house of cards didn't they where you had this mm. incredibly out there president and you got to a point where it didn't seem that far fetched anymore even when he's throwing people under trains and stuff you're a bit like eh. And that that is difficult. Mm. It is difficult.
0: But I think it's also talking about the role of news and how news has evolved yes. and how journalism has evolved as well. And you'll have exchanges in in here and uh, about the, the the approach to journalism by different publications yeah. as well. So there is a Washington Post in this. You have Alfred Molina as Ben Bradley. Now, quick digression, quick sidebar on this. This is, to my knowledge, the third time that Ben Bradley has been played in a movie. And I'm wondering, is that kind of some kind of record for someone who's not Jesus? <laughs> You know what I mean? It's a, like
2: it's a lot, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so you got and J- then you've had Ben Bradley Jr. Ben Bradley well. Jr. in yeah.
0: Spotlight. Uh, so and you had the ages of the actors just bounce around as well. So you have Jason Robards and all the President's Men, who mm-hmm. was you know this white-haired, you know, sex demon, and that's just what Jason in Robards master. is.
2: Interesting insight into your psyche there
0: oh, come on, it's Jason Robards. Uh, Then you have Tom Hanks in The Post Mm. as some sort of grey-haired sex sex demon. demon. And now you have Alfred Molina, who's just your regular commoner garden sex demon Mm. and, you know, with his eight arms and whatnot. And, yeah, it's just, it's interesting that that character, that that real-life person has been played three times in Mm. three fairly high-profile films by three very, very different people. So here's another thing. I have no idea what the real Ben Bradley looks like. (laughs) Like, none whatsoever.
2: I think looks-wise, it's None of those people look alike. No, but I think he's most like Tom Hanks.
0: He looks like that. Jane has just got him up on the... He Wow. wow. He looks like someone has indeed smushed Jason Robards together. Well, with... Uh, sex demon. With a sex demon. <laughs> there you go. That's it. So you have Ben Bradley, who is the editor of the Washington Post, and that has this kind of... Well, they they, they take their journalism very, very seriously. So they looked sneeringly down on the tabloid antics of the Miami Herald, which is the one that actually breaks the news. Mm -hmm. And indeed, Bob Woodward's in this film as well. And you have Ben Bradley saying we had LBJ come in and say, "Look, there's going to be lots of women coming to my hotel room, so you guys just turn a just turn mm. a blind eye." Yeah, well, yeah, of course we will, absolutely fine. Uh, now that that obviously doesn't happen these days, but it's an interesting look at <laughs> a what
3: isn't isn't accessible people's view on sex and people's view on ethics in public office, mm-hmm. but also in as you said the role of the media and the speed and the sort of omnipresence of media. Because then you know they they were onto something, whereas actually he was almost doing it. In plain sight. In these days, with you know Twitter and smartphones and whatnot, no one can get away with anything, and everyone's life is on full display. So I think it, it does it puts a lot of things into into kind of stark contrasts. Yeah, it's interesting and mm. also wildly depressing.
0: <laughs> but really good. and I thought that uh, Reitman directed it in, yes. in a f- sort of not flashy but also kind of flashy Slightly way. ultiman esque. Yeah, there's some really really interesting long takes mm. and uh, good performances, but uh, they just need to keep a lid in that, that hair. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, I will say also that there is another film in which Ben Bradley plays a part and it is, of course, the 1999 comedy Dick. Anyone seen that film? Oh, yeah. Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams? No. Very, very funny about two uh, young girls who are kind of, shall we say, simplistic and uh, they bring down uh, Richard Nixon Mm -hmm. inadvertently. And so you actually have um, Bob Woodward in that film as well, played by Will Ferrell. Ben Bradley's played by G.D. Spradlin. Okay. Uh, from The Godfather Part Two mm-hmm. and movies like that.
2: So we've all learned something today, except and for the, Chris, who knew all that stuff about I Colette genu- already. I
0: genuinely knew that stuff about Dick. <laughs> I did not know the stuff you uh, knew about Dick the book learning. About
2: Colette.
0: <laughs> I really did. And the sex demon stuff, that was all supposition as well. Thanks. Alright then. Four stars also then for the front runner, and that is it. That's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film related fun, where we'll be joined by Do You Want to Accept? episode of Emperor Podcast with Charlie Brooker or do you not wish to accept episode of Emperor Podcast with Charlie Brooker Helen choose your own adventure
2: accept
0: correct that's right we have an interview with the creator of Black Mirror and more recently of course Bandersnatch the choose your own adventure episode Charlie Brooker will be on the show and also Nicole Kidman ooh or Adam McKay Ah. oh this is fun we could do this let us know on Twitter who you want to be on next week's episode (laughs) Choose your own podcast. That's what I like to hear. So it'll be either Nicole Kitman for Destroyer or Adam McKay for FICE.
2: What happens to the person we don't...
0: Pick? The week after. Okay. You'll hear it anyway. It doesn't really matter. It's just a bit of, you know, a dog and pony show, isn't it? Okay. Bells and whistles. Fine then. Hells anyway, bells and whistles. Hells bells and whistles. <laughs> anyway, until we meet again, until a auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from James Dyer. On the Pilot TV oh, podcast no. this week,
3: <laughs> we will be reviewing oh, The Punisher, possibly God. Star Trek Discovery if I get to see it.
0: And, and it's goodbye from our geek queen, Helen O'Hara.
2: Toodaloo. It's been fun, hasn't it? I mean, fun is one word. Define fun. Hmm.
0: And it's goodbye for me. I'm off to attend one of those bath-to-tea parties I've heard so much about and I'm bringing a sex demon with me. (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.